Support for Paradox comes from the Timothy Center, your online counseling center no matter where you live. The Timothy Center is a marriage and family counseling facility in Austin, Texas, offering distance consultations for those that live outside the Austin area. If you have questions and you'd like to consult with Jimmy, Josh, or one of their licensed professionals, visit them at timothycenter.com. Recording live from Austin, Texas, a conversation about marriage and family that women will love and guys won't want to turn off. Dr. Jimmy Myers and Dr. Josh Myers are a paradox. Guys, welcome to the show. This is Paradox and I'm Josh. And I'm Jimmy from afar. Jimbo is from afar today, but he's able to make it, so we're happy about that. We are so excited to have on the show today Eric Geiger. Eric, thank you so much for joining us. Guys, thanks for having me. It really is an honor to be invited. Eric is Senior VP at Lifeway. Uh, He also has a podcast, the Five Leadership Questions podcast. He's also an author, and his latest book that comes out actually right now, uh, we're releasing this early April, is How to Ruin Your Life. Eric, tell us about the book. Well, it's it's a book that tells the story of King David and his very well-known and very tragic implosion, 2 Samuel chapter 11, when he, he ruins his life. And then, thankfully, by God's grace, the story for David doesn't end there. He He receives God's grace and forgiveness. And so, Part of the book is learning from his implosion, and then the other part of the book is is finding our worth and our identity and grace and forgiveness in Christ. And the book really came from a season, and I'm sure you're seeing this too, where it feels like there are more and more, not just leaders, but Christians who are absolutely wrecking their lives. And so it yeah. I gave a talk one time to all of our employees at Lifeway, just basically pleading with them, begging with them to to not follow David's example of some of the explosives in his heart that led to his implosion. And hmm. the the girl who leads books for Lifeway came to me and said, "Eric, we've got to make that into a into a to a little book." And so that's that's how it happened. What motivated you to write this book? Kind of who who was your target audience? Well. I, my target initially, when I when I spoke, it was just people that I care for and love that I serve alongside, and I, so I, the content initially came from a, a place of brokenness for me of seeing people that I love and care for implode over the last several years, and feeling responsible to share with others. Hey, we we must stay focused on the Lord. We can't keep ourselves strong. We He must be the one who keeps us strong, and then. And then when it expanded to uh, to going into a book, it my as I'm writing, I'm thinking about people in my life who I've loved and have seen ruin their lives, and and then people who I know are struggling, and and even to myself, someone who I I, mean, I know I am frail, and I could easily, I mean, I didn't write psalms like David wrote psalms. I haven't united the the kingdom the way David did. Uh, I haven't been called a man after God's own heart the way David was. And so if he could implode, I know for sure I can. And so as I was writing the book, it was also a challenge to my own heart to learn from the lessons that we see in the scripture. Before we went on the air, we were talking about the Lifeway building, how it had been uh, demolished, been imploded. And you kind of referenced that same thing with these leaders that that their lives are demolished. You say, you know, it kind of 
that implosion happens from within. How so? Yeah, it's an image that that is is uh, really ingrained in, in my mind and my heart. So I, I work downtown Nashville, and you see all these cranes there, and all these new buildings coming up. But oftentimes, before a new building comes up, and a former building has to get knocked down. And there's really two approaches to tear down a building. You can you can attach a wrecking ball to a crane and hit it from the outside. And when you do that, everyone knows that this building is about to go down. It's announced to everyone who drives by. And then there's buildings that are imploded. And when an implosion happens, you can't you can't tell unless you know that that building is going to be imploded. But if you're just driving by, you would not you would not know that there's people who have put explosive devices at strategic places to weaken the foundation of the building. You wouldn't know that beneath the surface there's there's things that are taking place that in just a matter of seconds that building is going to is going to implode. And so you can't you can't tell from the outside, it's only from the inside. And oftentimes in the Christian circles we you know we, we talk about the attacks from the outside and they're there. But it's it, it seems as if oftentimes what really causes people to fall is the implosion from the inside when our character weakens or the the burdens of our of our responsibility, the pressure of our roles is greater than our character. And when that happens, the foundation weakens and it, it implosion takes place. I mean, you, you've heard the cliche for years, and it's really true. That it takes a lifetime to build credibility, and then it can really be lost in just a just couple a of moments. Sure. I'm reminded when I, you know, this whole discussion about things like this, I always think about that old casting crown song. It's a slow fade to give yourself away. You know, how is this implosion or this demolition of someone's life? How does, how does it go undetected for so long? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I think, especially in Christian circles, we, we, we're able to stay surface with some people in our lives and, and, and we've learned some of the right things to say, some of the right behaviors to, 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 um, force externally that can really cover up what's going on deep within, you know, the, you read the, read the gospels, you see the Pharisees were really good at that. They were really good sure. at, at the external, why the, why the inside of the cup was, was filthy and unclean. And I, I when you look at David, um, you know, Second Samuel 11, when his implosion happens, the, the narrative opens with him alone. And he has people there, but not the people who would have held, held him accountable. So in, in many ways, he's isolated. He's sent people off to war. And that's where kings are usually in the spring. And he's not. And so he's alone. And so oftentimes, if we are alone, even we can be alone among people in that they we're surrounded by people who are impressed with us, who won't hold us accountable. Um, that that was David. So you know, that can you can go. Sin beneath the surface can go undetected when we're in isolation. You mentioned how as Christians we can kind of fly under the radar easily. I'm assuming the church facilitates that, and therefore at some level we're our own worst enemy because we're all involved in the church. But kind of speak to that a little bit more, and and maybe kind of speak also to pastors. Are they more susceptible to that? And let me jump in real quick, because one of my questions dovetails exactly with that. Because pastors specifically, and Christian leaders, 
are often, almost always isolated by virtue of their position. How, how do we within the church, it's almost like they're set up for ruin. How do we, in, how do we get this institutional paradigm to shift? Yeah, that's, I, I agree. Um, and pastors, be, be, you know, I spent years in local church ministry. There is a temptation to want to be isolated because oftentimes when I'm with people, when I'm a pastor, they, uh, there's always something to do. You know, it's hard to be with a group of people and not feel an, uh, there's another thing I have to, to, mm-hmm. to be consumed with or concerned about or something that has to be fixed at the church or, or uh, you know, you go to dinner with a couple and your wife and, and it's hard to let down your guard because you, you're, you're feeling responsible to minister to them and, and you're hearing problems about the preschool kids area. <laughs> you know, you, mm-hmm. you always right. are on. And, and so when a, when a pastor has that for a long period of time, there is a real temptation to um, preach about community, but not be in community, to uh, mm-hmm. warn people about the dangers of isolation, but to be in isolation mm-hmm. yourself. So it it takes, I think, for us to overcome this institutional paradigm, as you mentioned, um, is really a, a robust view of Christian community, and that it, that would be that we're all broken. Therefore, it's it's really safe to not have to put on the mask and that we all are only able to to stand before God because of his grace and not because of anything that we you know have done and for, for that's the the theological side from a practical side it means that that Christian leaders pastors we've got to get over the some of those cliches that we've always heard you know it's lonely at the top no one understands me when leaders start to believe those cliches, they will they'll, they'll run to isolation. Bonhoeffer said that sin demands to have a man by himself. So sin wants me alone. Hmm. And so I've got to practically push through that. And even if it means relationships of, with, with people who aren't in my church or um, relationships with, with people where it's risky, to uh, be transparent, it is risky because community will oftentimes hurt you and disappoint you and let you down. But isolation is way more risky than, than community. And for a pastor, you know, they, and I think everyone just, uh, and I, I know we don't want to just focus just on that type of leadership, but I think people understand that the need for transparency and and that is good and having community. But for a preacher, transparency could mean unemployment. Yeah, uh, you know, community could mean my my kids, uh, dad's mm. unemployed. You know, yeah. and again, it goes back to that that paradigm within the church that this man has to be perfect. He can't right. and he can't struggle. And if he if he mentions, God forbid, that he actually mentions to someone that he is a human being and is struggling, uh, then they run the great risk of being out on their ear. Yeah, that that I mean that I really appreciate your heart on this because that that totally gets to the the ground level reality of what a lot a lot of Christian leaders live with. And so I've even told guys, you know, if, if they don't feel safe in their own context for that very reason, and I may, I may not have health insurance if I if I share my struggle in the you know in this area, they've got to find some community, maybe some some other pastor friends in another state. Right. You know, they've got they cannot be. They can't be alone. 
And what you're saying, you're seeing that in Austin over the past five to seven years, that head pastors will get together with other head pastors and kind of have that community, youth ministers with youth ministers. And so certainly that's key. Bringing it down from kind of that larger Christian context of isolation and destruction, kind of talk about our, our, our families, because we're also isolated in our families, which is crazy to even kind of consider, but even within marriage, right? Like the one person God's given us to be transparent to and with, often we're, we're isolated, kind of speak to some of the often ignored patterns underneath this isolation and implosion so that spouses can kind of be on the look. That, that's good. And so I'll talk about isolation, but also in terms of marriage, we'll talk about boredom, because that's another thing you see in David's in David's heart, and that leads to his implosion. So the second verse in Second Samuel 11 is David's walking on, on the rooftop in the middle of the night, and he's looking for something. And this is the same David that years before would wake up the dawn with singing in the cave in Psalm 57. This is David who later would pray, uh, Lord, on my bed, I remember you. I think about you through the watches of the night. But not in Second Samuel 11. Second Samuel 11, David is not thinking of the Lord, looking for the Lord. He's bored, and he's looking, he's looking for something else. And I have had, as a, as a pastor for years, guys who would um, wander in their marriage or, or ladies who would wander in their marriage. Uh, I would hear the phrase bored frequently. You know, sometimes it would be, I'm just, I was just bored with my job or bored with my career and I just needed something exciting, and 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 so I I, I pursued that in, in another man or another woman, or I was bored with my marriage, you know, and and I used to hear the the, the word bored and not necessarily equate it with sin, but boredom, it it is sin because boredom means you're looking for something other than other than the Lord because sure. if you're looking at Him, you're not going to be bored because He always quenches and always satisfies. So when when a couple will say, you know, hey, we're in a boring season in our marriage, or we're bored, it, there, it's a confession that we aren't together as a couple mm-hmm. look, looking to Him, looking to the Lord. So when a guy, I've had so many guys tell me that, man, I, I'm just bored. I'm, 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 I'm bored in my marriage, bored at job. And that is a, that is a huge confession. Mm-hmm. The guy may not realize he's admitting it, but he's not looking at the Lord because the Lord's not boring. And so there's the boredom element in the marriage, and there's obviously, as you mentioned, the isolation element, where it's now in our culture, and you can be in the same room with somebody, you know, because of our phones, because of technology, and just stay very, very surface. And so that that happens uh, in friendships, and obviously it happens in marriage, too. I love it that you bring up Second Samuel and that story of of David and Bathsheba. I just in in my counseling practice, I just wear that story out with people, especially as you mentioned that the very beginning in the in the spring when kings go off to war, David was at his palace. You know, he was he was where he should not have been. So right. when we're talking about avoiding this ruin, this implosion, how important do you find boundaries? within a person's life, in relationships. Uh, Vice President Pence was was mocked because, hey, I'm not going to go alone to have a meal with a woman, and society mocked him for that. How important 
or boundaries to this process of avoiding ruin? Yes, yeah, it's, it's funny that people uh, knock and then knock when we have those those self-governing rules, you know. Uh, but at the same time, then then when you have a guy who has a life of integrity, you're in the end we end up being grateful for the example, you know. Yeah. Uh, so I, I think the boundaries are um, they're wise. They're wise not because we think the people who would knock Pence for that would say, uh, you know, he's saying that people would come on to him or he's 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 casting blame on other people. That's not the case. That's the case. You know, when we set boundaries for ourselves, it's often because we realize our own fragility. Mm-hmm. Uh, we realize we realize our own struggle uh, with, with sin. And so it's, we just to, to put boundaries around yourself is very wise. And obviously, I think, you know, people view those differently in different contexts. But to put boundaries around yourself, um, I, I agree with you, is, is a is a wise move because we know how, how prone our hearts are to wonder. So this is a book about how, the title obviously is How to Ruin Your Life, but it's about a, a book about how not to ruin your life. And also, though, it's a book about hope, that if it has happened, that there is hope. Speak to that for a second. I really love, my favorite part of the book is the second part of the book, because I know that that's, I I, I haven't had an an epic um, faltering like, like David did, the one I would have today make the paper and would you know, just be so, so scandalous. I mean, imagine if David's story happened now, it would, it would just be so scandalous. But I, I still, I mean, I, I sin regularly and need, need God's grace daily. So I'm so glad for David's implosion being in the account because it shows me that God's grace is, is bigger than all my sin. Mm-hmm. Psalm 51 is, is David's prayer of confession after the prophet Nathan confronts him. And it is is an amazing psalm. Martin Luther said of the psalm that there's no other place in the Bible where we see the full comprehensiveness of our sin. Because uh, in the first couple of verses in Psalm 51, there's three different Hebrew words used for used for sin. So it's a it's a weighty, weighty psalm. And in that psalm, David doesn't blame anybody else. He doesn't mention Bathsheba. He uh, he doesn't throw his men under the bus because they brought Bathsheba to him. He owns his sin fully. But he finds God's grace, creating me a clean heart, renew a steadfast spirit within me. Um, Lord, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. And he, so he finds he finds God's grace, and that's Psalm 51. And then Psalm 32 is his celebration of finding forgiveness. Um, how how blessed is the man, how happy is the man who you don't you don't charge me with sin, even though I did all of this stuff, God. You don't charge me with sin at all. So it's really, I hope, for for someone who reads the book, who has struggled and, and maybe feels like he or she's ruined their life, that they find that God's grace is, is greater and bigger than all their sin. And that actually, maybe their implosion was the best thing that could have happened to them Amen. because it has alerted them to their brokenness and has, has been an invitation to them for, to receive God's grace. If we're parents, we obviously don't want our children to ruin their lives. What what type of parenting principles can be just a few garnered from this book to help us in those efforts? Well, I can I can really look back to my parents who were amazing, and I did I completely ruined my life. My uh, going into my senior year in high school, 
um, this is this really what led to my conversion and 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 re- receiving God's grace that I haven't gotten over. And I, I summer before I turned a senior in high school was arrested, eleven felony accounts, had stolen things, and I mean I was I was in drugs and just all kind of crazy stuff, and um, had grown up in a Christian home, but just was bored and chased after things that are less than less than Christ. And uh, my dad walks into my room right after I was arrested, and he reads some verses to me in the Bible, and I I, I don't even really remember what he what he read. I had not seen my dad cry that I could remember at any point in my life till then. And he breaks down and he says, I just want you to know, son, you'll never do anything that would stop me from loving you. Mm-hmm. And he, 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 he walks out, he walks out the room. And for me, that was a huge moment of a picture of God, the father's grace extended, extended towards me. A couple of weeks later, I stood up in front of this small church I grew up in, in the New Orleans area. And I, I don't even remember why I did this. I just felt compelled to do it. I, I walked down to the front of the church during the singing time and asked the pastor if I could uh, say a couple words. And, and he gave me the microphone and uh, I apologized to the church for embarrassing, embarrassing our church because my name was in the paper. You know, I was, I was 17, but it was, I guess I was old enough for the arrest to make the paper. And, and, and so everybody knew, everybody knew about it. And so I got in front of the church and, um, and asked for forgiveness for embarrassing us as a people of God, um, and not representing the Christian faith. Well, so after the church service, uh, people just rushed to the front and hugged, hugged. And it was, it was a beautiful picture of, uh, grace and, community. And so I look back at that and, and the kind of parent I want to be is one that my kids are going to know that that when they mess up, that that dad's love is permanently fixed on them to give them a picture of, of uh, our, our father, our eternal father's love permanently fixed on them. So I, I, really my suggestion on parenting would be more of of parenting with grace because that's called, that's what's caused me to always want to go back to my parents is how they, is how they parented me with, with grace. Well, I'll tell you, this is, um, the first time in 2018 that, Oh, hold on. I'm sorry. Right. For the, well, for the first time in 2018, I'm awarding my favorite guest award. Uh, you, Eric, and again, it's not something that is dealt out lightly. Jim, well, that uh, was so random. He was just sharing a very heartfelt moment about his parents. That, and you start with that's why I'm music? called the Prince of Blind. Oh my God! So the next time, Eric, you are in Austin, enchiladas imas on me. Oh wow! Man, <laughs> are you planning I, on being in Austin anytime soon? I. uh I don't. I don't think. I, you know, I'm good friends okay, with Kevin fine. Peck, who's the lead pastor at Austin Stone. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. But I, I, I'm not. I don't think we have anything. We we talk all the time about getting together again. I, I've spent some some time with him multiple times at his house, but I've never. I don't have anything on the counter yet. 
Okay, because I'm very confident in giving it to you just as long as you're not due to show up here anytime soon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's been a couple of times that I've handed this out and then people sprung it on me that are actually coming to town and it really worried me. So I, I just it, tell you, yeah. congratulations. The first favorite guest of 2018. <laughs> oh, awesome, man. <laughs> Eric, thank you so much for being on the show. If you want more information about Eric, it is ericgeiger.com. Eric, thank you so much. Yeah, guys, thanks for having me. I'm grateful. Jimbo, we only had a few hiccups from a distance. Yes, you even tried to silently FaceTime me so we could do like hand signals. And then (laughs) you automatically then hung up on me. I hung up because there was an echo. And I don't know if Billy can can take that out. Oh, because I turned down the, the, the mic on my end. I did too, but I don't think you can mute it. It There was at least one little bitty bar on the volume, and I could hear that through my headphones. And I'm sure people are very interested in this. (laughs) It's just kind of the content they get with the Paradox. Exactly. Okay, a couple of things that I have written down. I can't believe we just found out at the end that he was from New Orleans. I would have loved to have talked crawfish with him. Seriously, at Touffet. The pressure of your roles becomes greater than your character. Woo! Come on now. That will preach. And then of course Bonhoeffer, you know that sin wants to get you alone. Yep. Uh sin has to get you alone. We talk about this all the time, but isolation breeds pathology, it breeds addiction, it breeds sin. Uh, uh, uh isolation is one of the great warning signs of a marriage, of a family, but especially of an individual. And he nailed that. I cannot wait to get my hands on a copy of his book. I loved his picture. Something else that I attempt in my own life as well as talk to parents about is this that positional worth and value that our love, our affection, the worth and value we ascribe to our kids is not conditional on the their behavior. And that story about his father walking in, and the only thing him saying is, "There's, there's nothing you can do that's going to make me stop loving you." And then just walking out of the room is a perfect example of that. Dropping the relational mic after, yeah, after eleven felony accounts. That's a pretty incredible story, and I like that picture. Uh, He talked about boundaries. He also talked about boredom. All that was good stuff. Guys, How to Ruin Your Life by Eric Geiger. Pick it up. Obviously, you can Amazon, Barnes & Noble, also obviously available at uh, Lifeway stores. If you want more information about him, again, it's ericgeiger.com. If you want more information about this show and any links to things we talked about, it's paradoxpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can follow the show as well as Doc Jimmy and Doc Josh on all three of those platforms. You can find that information at paradoxpodcast.com. Jimbo, I hope you have a great rest of your day. What are you doing? I hope you enjoy putting all that equipment up by yourself since I'm not there. What are you doing the rest of the day? Uh, Napping. (laughs) I was not expecting that answer. Well, it's all I could do to keep awake during this particular broadcast. Done. I'm assuming you didn't get good sleep last night. Well, enjoy, and guys, y'all have a good rest of your day. See ya. Paradox is produced by Billy Lee Myers Jr. For more about Billy, go to therapywithbilly.com. For more information about our Paradox evangelist, Julie Lyles Carr, go to julielylescar.com. And if you want more details about what was discussed on today's show, go to paradoxpodcast.com.
Next time on Paradox. She has time and time again mentioned that I need to slow down and stop changing lanes all the time. (laughs) And I don't. Uh. We see this differently. Mm -hmm. She's asked me to love her in this way. And she has actually expressed, like, this is a thing where I feel unloved when you do these things. And I come back with, well, I don't feel like you trust me to take care of our family and our vehicle, so I feel disrespected (laughs) in this. So it's really a kind of a sticking point, right?